God has to say to us through the book of Romans. So we're going to be in Romans chapter 2. We're finally at chapter 2 of Romans. I'm going to read the first six verses. You can follow along on the overhead if you'd like. And we're going to dig into the text. What happens when you get old, your glasses get all foggy. Alrighty, let's do this. Romans chapter 2. See what God has to say to us. Therefore, you are without excuse, every man of you who passes judgment. For in that you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. And do you suppose this, O oh man, when you pass judgment upon those who practice such things, you do the same yourself that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepenting heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. Wow. That hits you right in the eyes, doesn't it? I have some questions on slide three to kind of draw us into the text. These are questions for you to really be asking yourself as we... Um, Go through this. So, what happens to your prayer life and how you speak about God to others when you don't get what you want? It's already quiet, Dr. Carter. How do you talk about others when they get in the way of what you want or think you're entitled to? How about this, church? Is their name safe in your mouth? What's coming out of your mouth when things in your life become really difficult? And how often is complaining or grumbling, how often is that a part of your everyday talk with others? How toxic does it become, church? Is the way... You talk with others toxic. Is it infected with demands and criticism of others? Is it condemning talk? And finally, what happens with your talk when other people sin against you and hurt you? Now, I understand this morning that these are pretty uncomfortable questions, but we need an honest and open communication with the Lord. Amen? And as we continue through this series on the book of Romans, 
Here we now arrive at chapter 2 of Paul's letter to this pretty young church in Rome. And you will notice that Paul begins this chapter in the first verse of chapter 2 with the word therefore. What's that saying to us? Well, it tells you and I that Paul is just continuing on from what he's been teaching us through chapter 1. So what Paul is about to share with us in chapter 2 is coming out of what he's been sharing to us, to, saying to us in chapter 1. Just a couple things, slide 5. Remember back in chapter 1, verse 16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew and also the Greek. Of course, this answers the question for every one of us as to how a person can get right with God. See, the gospel message from God, which is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, is the righteousness from God. This gospel is this great proclamation that God has provided for us a righteousness, a righteousness by faith and not of works. Remember, righteousness is the act by where God declares you right. It's not because you and I could do anything to deserve that, because it's what he has chosen to do. Slide 6. The righteousness is revealed how? Verse 17 of Romans 1. For in it, a righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. We learn why this is necessary. Because in verse 18, slide 7, Paul says the wrath of God, and again, this is in the present tense, is continually being revealed, is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, against all the righteousness of men who are suppressing or forcing back the truth that they don't want to hear in unrighteous behavior. So we learn that God's anger and hatred against sin has been revealed. And Paul wanted each of us to understand the depth of our sin and how our sins have separated us from God. Remember that ungodliness, we define those terms. Ungodliness means to be immoral, profane. The un idea of ungodliness, church, has the idea of this total defiance towards God and a desire for evil things. This means that anything in you and I that fails to bring glory and honor to God and worship Him and only Him is ungodliness, and there is nothing more ungodly than for a person to not see any need for the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Just when we think we're pretty good, that's when we can easily start to really get into trouble. Amen. And we also learn that unrighteousness has the idea of that which does not conform to justice, doing evil and morally wrong behavior. So the gospel that Paul preached tells us how God himself, church, has provided you and I with his own way of saving men. He sent his only unique son, Jesus the Christ, to die in our place for our sin. Let's never forget that the Father placed all of his anger against sin and ungodliness and righteousness, and he placed it and he punished his son for you and me. 
The father's anger demanded the death of his only son because he's the only one that qualified to pay our sin debt in full. Church, it's God's hatred of sin that his only son came into the world to bear the wrath of his father's anger against sin. He then took his son's righteousness and he placed it into our account so that you and I could stand before the father blameless, not because we could deserve it. So the father made a way whereby his own wrath could express itself against sin, and yet you and I who are the sinners would not be destroyed, but instead we would be made right because Jesus took the punishment we deserved. Don't ever forget that. So you and I can then stand before the Father because you and I are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Listen to me this morning. That's the only way. Someday you're going to drop dead. And there's not going to be any backroom deals. There's not going to be any second chances, church. Don't ever forget that. So our fellowship, our koinonia with the Father is then restored through the person and work of Jesus Christ. No wonder Paul glorified in the gospel. And then through all that, he brings us to chapter 2. Slide 8. Therefore, you have no excuse every one of you who passes judgment for in that which you judge another you condemn yourself for you who judge practice the same things you can see here on the text the word judges there's the word krenon in the Greek which is where we get our English word criticized from see you guys knew Greek and you didn't even realize it doesn't that excite you <laughs> So let's define some terms here. Crenon passes judgment. What does that word crenon mean? It means to form and express a judgment or opinion as to any person or thing more commonly unfavorable. You're inclined to find fault or to judge with severity, often too readily. That's the word criticize or crenon, where we get that word from. So we need to say, okay, well, Paul, what in the world, why are you making this statement right here in the text? Well, if we go back and search history all the way back to Paul's day and even before Paul's day, we need to understand something about the Jewish people of that day. You see, the Jews of that day, church, they divided the whole world into two groups of people. You were either a Jew or you were not Jewish. That was it. They thought that Paul was actually condemning the Gentiles or the non-Jewish people simply because they were Gentiles, because they weren't Jewish. They did not think that Romans 1, 18-32 applied to them. <clears throat> and the Jews hated, hated the gospel message because they felt that they did not need salvation. Because after all, they thought, well, hey, we're God's chosen people. We have the law, the scriptures, the prophets. We were circumcised. So the Jews thought that, hey, we're in a different category altogether. God's judgment certainly wouldn't come against us. So they objected to the gospel message, and many of them still today object to it. So, you know, through the New Testament, if you go through Matthew and the Subnautic Gospels, we see the Pharisees, they're arguing with Jesus, they're constantly quarreling with him, they're debating him, and they're hoping to trap him. They didn't like him. Why? Well, his preaching revealed to them that they are the sinners that they really know that they are 
And they hated him for that. And today, people in church still hate Jesus for that. But God's word, church, is still as clear today as when it was penned. Slide 9. Romans 3.10. As it is written, graphade, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. How about slide 10? In the book of Psalms. Yahweh has looked down from heaven. He's looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. And that's also Romans 3, verses 11 through 14. So Paul was actually quoting to the Jews the Old Testament. That's what he's doing. He's taking up the case against the Jewish people who condemn the Gentiles. What does he tell them? Therefore, slide 11, you have no excuse. That's the word anthropos. Man, every one of you, whole anthropos, every one of you who's passing judgment, and there's the word again, crenon, criticizing. We're better than you. So what's he doing? He's exposing the Jews who, while agreeing with Paul concerning the divine wrath against the non-Jewish people, they had assumed that they were in some kind of immunity from God's judgment because they were Jews. There's no one righteous, no, not one church. That's the point. Paul is stating here that the very thing the Jews are condemning the Gentile people for, they're practicing the very same behaviors that they were condemning them for. They have no excuse. In fact, they should know better because they had the law and the prophets. If you were to read through the Old Testament, you would see that the Jewish nations were very guilty of some of the most foulest, horrible sins, and their moral condition was frequently deplorable, much like you see going on today in our country. And if we're to be honest this morning, all of us, me, you, all of us have been guilty of doing these things as well. How about slide 12? Here's some uh, stuff that from Paul Tripp. Love these questions that Paul asks. How does the way you speak reveal your frustration and anger towards other people? Think about what comes out of your mouth when you're angry with other people. What's it reveal about your heart? How do you find yourself responding when your plans are ruined and you don't end up getting your own way? How many times have we put God on trial or other people on trial when we're practicing the very same thing that they do? In fact, how quickly do we find ourselves being critical of others who don't follow our plans? How do you respond to the Lord when he sends suffering and disappointment your way? Let me ask that question again. How do you respond to Yahweh? All we are is just packaged dirt trying to put the creator who gives us breath and life on trial because he's sending suffering or disappointment our way. And God never does anything without a purpose and plan. 
ever. How do we link this to what Paul teaches us in chapter 1? Because God's anger, his wrath, has been continually revealed against all people, and because all people have been given a knowledge of God, a person who passes judgment on another person is without excuse before the living God. He says they are without excuse, church. It seems then that Paul is directing this accusation to those who have suppressed, that's the word kateko, meaning they're forcing back the knowledge that God has revealed of himself through creation. Put up slide 13. <clears throat> Paul says back in Romans 1, because that which is known about God is evident within them, God made it evident to them. So Paul invites anyone, any person ever, who's passing judgment on another person, that they better include themselves in that judgment as well. <clears throat> Think about church, if you're standing before God, before the beam of seat, and he pops all the VCR tapes in of your history, and you get to see everything you've ever done from the moment that you became aware of right and wrong to right now, how much sin would it reveal? How many people have we assassinated their character with our mouths? How many people have we passed judgment on? Because they did things not the way we want them. Think about it. This is inviting you and I to do a Psalm 139, verse 23, to search ourselves, to see if there's any evil way in us. So that's what Paul's doing here. He really wanted the Jews of that day to realize that they can never be excused from this category just because of their nationality. Anyone, including a Jew, who condemns another, according to the scriptures, is without excuse. <clears throat> Slide 14. Look at how Paul finishes this verse. For in that which you judge another, you are condemning yourself. For you who are judging, you are being critical and criticizing others. You're practicing the same things. You see, church, the one who passes judgment and condemns another is without excuse, as the text says, because that person is guilty of practicing the same behavior. How about slide 15? This was the last verse we looked at, verse 32 of Romans 1. <clears throat> And although they knew, or they were literally fully aware of, the ordinances of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death. The Bible says it is appointed once for a person to die, and then the judgment. They not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. See, Paul wanted the Jews of that day to, to really understand that these sins were just as prevalent in their own lives as they were in the Gentiles' life. Please hear me this morning. None of us are immune from sin. Let's be honest this morning. Put up slide 16. Let me reverse this here. What happens to our talk when other people sin against us, do we immediately get that defensive posture? 
Think about it. What happens to the way you and I speak when other people sin against us? What do I say to others about them? Like I said before, is their name safe in your mouth? Oh, it's really quiet now, Dr. Carter. What happens to my talk when I see the Lord blessing others while I'm still struggling? Let me ask that again. I want you to hear that question one more time. What happens to my talk when I see the Lord blessing others while I'm still struggling? Well, look at those horrible sinners over here, how God's blessing them, and they got monies and swimming pools and ah, la, 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 la. None of y'all ever did that, I'm sure, so that's okay. When I see other people sinning, do I quickly condemn them and speak evil to them about others? Did you see what so-and-so did? Come here. I want to put some toxic sludge in your ears. It's interesting, church, that all of us tend to be blind to our own sin. We all have cataracts over our eyes when it comes to our own sin. But, you know, like I said before, God's word is like that great visine treatment. It gets the red out, doesn't it? You know, it's so easy to point the finger at others when we see them doing something wrong. But, man, don't we find it difficult to see our own sins and how they hurt others and how, more importantly, they hurt Yahweh. We all need to look into the mirror of Scripture, of God's Word, so that we can really start to see ourselves the way God sees us, church. It's so easy to apply the Scriptures to other people's lives instead of our own life. A fundamental flaw that the Jews back in Paul's day made is they never took into consideration how they lived out their daily life. They thought they were above, in a category above. It's called pride. Their thinking was, you know, I'm a Jew. I'm exempt. I'm okay. I'm all right. I'm not a horrible sinner like that person over there. And what do we see here? Now, we get into the nuts and bolts. We're starting to see here a separation from doctrine of Scripture and life. And when you are not into the Word of God, you will stumble really bad. And the more you sin, the more callous builds up on your heart. The things that you thought you would never do, now you're justifying them. And we're just as guilty, church. There are also people that will say, you know, I believed on the Lord Jesus, therefore I'm okay. But I don't want the deep teachings of Scripture. See, I prayed that prayer a long time ago. I asked Jesus into my heart. By the way, not one place in the Bible does that exist. You know, I went forward. I'm okay. And yet you notice that they go living just the way they did before they ever claimed to God saved. And here again, we see the separation of the doctrines of Scripture and life. What did Jesus say? That's the important thing. Can we live and grow separately from his word? Slide 17. Look at John 8, 31 and 32. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, and there's your conditional clause, if. If you continue in my word, then 
you are truly disciples of mine. So you have the clause and the condition. If you continue in my word, doesn't say if you have a scratchy, itchy feeling behind your neck or your hairs or your head stand up. It says if you continue in my word, then, <coughs> then you are truly disciples of mine. And you will know the truth. And the truth will make you free. You want to stay in bondage? Keep your Bible closed. Don't open it up. See how far you get. So let me ask you this question, church. Do you know the truth? Are you free because of it? Now keep in mind that the Jews, they did not consider themselves sinners. But Jesus wanted them to know that their works, how they lived their life each day, proved that they were sinners. All of us sin in thoughts, words, deeds, actions, and motives. We even sin in our prayers. So the whole business of the truth is to set us free. Jesus says, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. So here's the, based on that question, forget me, I'm insignificant. Do you spend enough time in the word where people would actually consider you a disciple? Well, what does that word mean, Pastor Jack? The word mathetes. It means a student. Back in the Old Testament, when the rabbis were there, the kids would grow up and they would have to learn the first five books of the Bible from memory. And then those kids could advance up. And then the next kids could learn the rest. And the best of the best could apply to the rabbis to be their mathetes, their students. So it could be said, blessed is the man who's covered by the dust of his Messiah or his priest. Think about that, church. Do we obey his word? When a person remains in Christ's word, continually abides in it, where it is not something that they blow the dust off for Sunday morning because they're going to church, but they're in those scriptures each day. Do we obey his word? Do we even know his word? If one of the unbelievers comes up to you and says, hey, you're a Christian. Yeah, I'm a Christian. Hey, can you tell me where the Ten Commandments are found in the scriptures? What two different places are found? You as a Christian or as a believer, would you be able to tell them where, where that's found? Would you be able to say, oh, let's go to Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy chapter 5 starting at verse 3 and show them the Ten Commandments? Most Christians don't even have the Ten Commandments on their wall, let alone opening up their Bible anymore. It's getting real quiet now, Dr. Carter. So, based on what Jesus said, not what I say, when a person continually abides in Christ's words, then that is a true pupil, a true disciple. It is only those who continue, that's an action word, as the text teaches us, who are genuine disciples. The sad part about it today in most churches, most people don't even realize they're in bondage. Most tend to rest on some position or some ethnic or social privilege. And some think that because they attend church, they're okay. Attending church does not make you okay. So the Jews back in Paul's day, they were proud of their religion, but they were blind to their own bondage to sin. So then, 
it is clear from what the Bible says we cannot separate doctrine from life, church. My admonishment to you, and pleading with you, open up your scriptures. You want a read through the Bible and a plan? See me after church. Give me your email. I'll send it to you. You can print it out. You can read a little bit each day. At the end of the year, you'll have read the entire scripture. But church, hear me this morning. Man, today, sadly, is so self-centered, proud, and blind that most will cling to anything they can to justify themselves and thereby reject God's wonderful plan of salvation and being justified and made right by faith alone. You were saved by faith alone in Christ alone. No other way. So what do we glean from what Paul's saying here? It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter the color of your skin, your educational background, the job you work, nothing. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Slide 18. When you read the scriptures, here's some questions to ask. What is the text saying to me? Jesus says, if you continue in my word, then you are truly a disciple of mine. What's it saying to me? And then the second question is, where do I need to apply what Jesus is saying here or any text of scripture to my life? If you really want to grow in wisdom, here's something that I started with men at the CBMC group years and years ago. Just read one chapter of Proverbs every day. Just one chapter. Take your time. If it's the first day of the month, read chapter one. There's 31 chapters in Proverbs. Some months have 31 days in it. Just one chapter a day. At the end of one year, you will have read each chapter 12 times. Don't tell me that you don't think that'll change you, because it changed me. It changed me. I know it'll change you. So whenever you read a scripture or hear a sermon, we need to apply it to our life, church. Not just to somebody else's life. Don't be sitting in church and saying, I really hope that person over here is really hearing what he's saying right now. Because it don't apply to me. Because it does. The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It is, church. So we all need to pray and ask the Lord to give us the grace to apply his word to our lives first before we would ever consider applying it to somebody else's life. How about slide 19? Look at Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. Now, by the way, in Matthew 7, that word judge is the same word judge that we've been reading in Rome. It's the word crenon, where to get the word criticized from. Do not be critical of others. Do not judge others so that you won't be judged. For in the way you judge, you criticize others, you will be criticized, you will be judged. And by that standard of measure that you have all the way up here for them, that they could never attain anyway, you're going to have to be at that same standard of measure. Why do you look at the little speck in your brother or sister's eye, but you're not even noting that huge, noticing that huge log in your own eye? <clears throat> or how can you say to your brother or sister, you know what? Since I'm better than you, 
Man, let me gouge that speck out of your eye. And behold, there's a log in your own eye. You hypocrite. By the way, that word hypocrite is where we get our English word actor from. You who are pretending to be something you're not. First, let's take the log out of your own eye. And then you will clearly see to start removing that speck out of your brother or sister's eye. So each of us, church, needs to be extremely careful about how critical and judgmental we are of other people. Because as we do this, the text is clear, crystal clear, that we are judging ourselves. Just think of all the judgments that you've placed on people, and now God lists all those judgments up there at that beam of seat of Christ, and now you're being judged for the same thing you judge others about. How many of them would you fail at? We're truly without excuse, aren't we? Amen? When we condemn others, we have already condemned ourselves. Let's take a quick look at, and then we'll finish up Romans 2, 2, slide 20, how Paul builds on this teaching. And we know, we know that there's that word again, there's the word crema, that judgment of God Look at those words there, rightly falls. That word rightly is, the word caught, it means down. Judgment falling down on us. On those who practice, see that? Practice such things. We know. It's not maybe we think about it. That word means we really know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. I want to tease this apart real quickly and then finish up. The Greek word there you can see in the text, the word oinomen, has the idea of something that you were fully aware of. It's also in the perfect tense in the Greek. So it talks about an action in the past that has continuing results. We knew this before, and we still know it today. So something in the past still with results in the present. That's in the perfect tense. So we, we knew before, and we still know that the judgment of God is rightly falling on those who practice such things. It's not something like new revelation. They've known this. The Jews knew this back from the Old Testament, as Paul used the Old Testament to teach them that. And we know it too. He says it rightly falls, which is actually two Greek words. The idea here is the reality... The truth, the word kata there, rightly, down. There's this distribution of intensity. This is really intense that is happening, that is going to be coming upon us. So how are we to understand what Paul is teaching us here? God's judgment has always been consistent with his truth in the past, and it continues to be consistent in the present. Okay? It doesn't change. It's immutable. Everything the same yesterday, today, and forever. So it's really important that we understand that. Okay? Everything that God does is right and is according to truth. I like what John MacArthur says about it. MacArthur says, There is always distortion in human perception, but never any in God's. There is no injustice with God. So when we condemn him because things are, we're struggling or suffering 
and we see other people being blessed and we're not, we are the ones with the problem, not God. Because there is never any injustice with God, church. So his truth rightly falls down on us with his intensity. Very important that we, we see that. That word falls there has the idea of truth. It's really the truth rightly falling on us or practicing things because God has no injustice with his truth. <clears throat> he tells us on those who practice such things. That word practice is also a, the word proso, as you can see there. The idea here is something that is repeatedly and habitually being done. You know, you're com- com- repeatedly and habitually doing the same sins over and over and over and over again. You're practicing them as a way of life. I know none of you ever struggle with that, so that's okay. So please understand that even if you are a child of the living God and you sin, please understand something. Who the Lord loves, He chastens. He will discipline you. As I've said before, sin generates consequence. What a terrible thing to not realize this, church. So hear me this morning. I'm almost done. When we are sinning against God over and over and over again, habitually and repeatedly in some way, we cause God to withhold his blessings. Let me say that one again for those who put God on trial. God, why are you allowing me to suffer and they're not suffering? Why are those sinners over there doing so well? When you and I are continually, habitually, repeatedly sinning over and over and over again, God will withhold his blessings. Whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. He will not bless when we are willfully, knowingly choosing to disobey him. And church, to be quite honest with you, based on the scriptures, we really have absolutely no right to ask him to bless us when we are sinning. You know, when you are cursing God out, hurling profanity at him, freaking out on him because of the positions that many of you have put yourselves in, when did it become God's fault that you chose to do the things you chose to do against his will when he tells you not to do it in his word? When did that become his fault? Why do we put him on trial for the mistakes that we choose to make? Oh, it got really quiet now, Doc. I'm just preaching what the text says. God's judgment is true because he is God and we are not. How about slide 21? What did Abraham say in Genesis 18, 25? Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? Now think about this for a moment. The Ten Commandments and the moral law, which is found in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, clearly shows God's judgment against sin. And we have further teachings in Leviticus, Numbers, We have the burnt offerings and the sacrifices, all of that going on. Why? Why was all that happening? Because God's judgment is always a judgment according to truth, and he wants it that way, and he always will want it that way. So if you ever think for a moment that God is caught off guard, I want you to consider this. Put up slide 22. Psalm 11, verses 4 and 5. Yahweh is in his holy temple. Yahweh's thronos, his throne, is aranos, it's heaven. 
His eyes behold. His eyelids test the sons of men. Yahweh tests the righteous. He tests the wicked. And the one who loves violence, his soul what? What is David revealing to us here? First, the Lord's in heaven and he's on his throne. Second, his eyes behold, his eyelids test. You know, the Hebrew here is pretty cool. It really is. The Hebrew word for behold has the idea of this deliberate, steady gaze. Think about it. He sees you literally prosopon, like face to face. He sees you inside out. He has a steady, deliberate gaze. So now I want you just, with that on your head, just try to imagine for a moment and realize that God sees everything we do. And if you really want your mind blown, get this. He knows what you're going to do before you do it. Before he knit you in your mother's womb a gazillion years before he invented time. He knew when you were created what sins you would commit, when and how. This verse is teaching me that he's constantly has a steady, deliberate gaze on me and on you. Then he says something interesting. We don't talk this way, obviously. His eyelids test. Today, we, we have the idea, uh, has the idea of examining. It's kind of like when you and I squint. We're looking at something really closely and we're squinting. God concentrates his gaze by narrowing his focus on you. What can we take away from this teaching this morning? Hear me this morning. Whatever's going on in your life, whether good or bad, whatever may be happening in your life right now, one thing is absolutely certain. God will never, ever do anything wrong to you. Ever. <clears throat> His judgments are always according to truth. And nothing you and I do or ever will do will escape that steady deliberate gaze that squinting of the eyes the point Paul was trying to get across seems to be that God's standards never waver and thank God for you and I that they don't he doesn't grade on some type of bell curve church there's not one standard for Jews and another standard for Gentiles because the eternal law of righteousness is in God himself he is truth and he can't deny himself his judgment is always consistent, unlike ours. Slide 23. <clears throat> In Luke 16, 15, he says to them, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. Now look at that, church. Look at the text. You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men. I want to look good in the sight of men. How are you doing this morning? Oh, everything's perfect in my life. Yeah. But God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. We have to stop trying to be men pleasers. It's not our job. You are not responsible to make somebody else happy. It's not your job. Just preaching what the text says. What's Jesus doing? 
He's telling the Pharisees, hey, you, you Pharisees, you know, you guys could justify your behaviors before men because men are poor judges and they do not judge according to truth. But God knows your hearts and his judgments penetrate right through it. He sees everything. Here's something else. God never bargains with sin. Well, I can go out and do this because God, God loves me. I can go out and do that because God loves me. Listen, God never bargains with sin. Mm-hmm. Don't make your own thoughts go above God's thoughts because you think it's okay to do it. God's going to be okay with it. That's not how it works, church. You can't buy them off or justify it. He doesn't strike backroom deals and he never compromises. Slide 24. <clears throat> oh, how do we back that up, Pastor Jack? I'm so glad you guys asked. Acts 10.34, Peter opening his mouth says, I must certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. Or I love how the King James puts it. God is no respecter of persons. So what do we conclude from this teaching? Because I know you're all hungry. Paul wanted the Jews to understand that their only hope of salvation open to them was exactly the same hope of salvation open to, to the Gentiles. And that just because you are a Jew, that's not going to save you. Just because you go to church, it's not going to save you. Or if you have a title next to your name or some initials next to your name, it's not going to save you. Only a righteousness which is received by faith in Jesus Christ could save them. And that is absolutely true for everyone here this morning and you listening right now around the world. God's justice and righteousness insist upon a judgment of sin. Hear me this morning. God must and will punish sin. So you may be asking me, well, Pastor Jack, I'm horrible. How can God forgive me? Well, we're all horrible too, aren't we? Because God has punished your sins and his own son, Jesus Christ. He took the punishment that you and I deserve and he punished his son. And God must punish sin because his judgment is according to truth. And God has judged our sins according to truth. And in doing so, it meant the death of his only unique son. Hopefully, by now, we realize that we are in no position to judge anyone. I want to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes this morning. We hear this message, and if we have any soul at all, we know that we're all guilty. I'm guilty, you're guilty, we're all guilty. So, how can God forgive me? Jesus Christ died on that cross 2,000 years ago. He shed blood when he was punched in the face. He shed blood when the crown of thorns was put on his head, and they were beating him over the head with a reed. When they were whipping him at that whipping stone with 39 lashes, he shed blood there. When he was on the cross, he shed blood there. In the garden of Gethsemane, he was sweating drops of blood. Blood was spilled and shed for you. That's the only thing that the Father will accept as punishment, or I should say payment, for our sin. You can't buy it. All you can do is go to God and say, forgive me. Surrender your life to Christ as he has been freely offered to you in the gospel. This is not a time to be daydreaming or thinking about something else. This is serious business this morning. 
Your soul depends on what I am telling you this morning. If you were to drop dead today, and you were to stand before holy God, and he was to ask you this question, why should I let you so-and-so into heaven? There's only going to be one answer, one answer to that question that's going to make any sense, that's going to be the right answer. That's because your son, Jesus Christ, shed his blood on that cross of Calvary as payment for my sin debt. So every sinful, rotten, filthy, horrible thing that I have ever done and you have ever done, that was all placed right on Christ. And his perfect life of obedience and righteousness, never breaking the law, that perfect life of righteousness was now placed into your account. So all of this horrible stuff that we've done went to Christ, and this perfect life of obedience has now been put into our account. Now, I know none of you ever went to the bank and had a non-sufficient funds account where you put the card and then the, the machine went, <laughs> none of y'all ever had that happen, right? You go there and your account's deficient. You owe it, but you don't have the money to pay it. So if the father takes the son's righteousness, and he says, look, I'm going to put this in your account. Your debt's paid in full. All you can do is receive it. That's all you can ever do is receive it. How? By trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ, his death, his burial, his resurrection for you. That's the only way that you and I will ever step into glory. If you are here this morning, you and I have no idea this could be the very last day that we could be on earth. I've shared many times about my daughter's friend many, many years ago. Woke up this morning, that morning just like you woke up this morning. Did everything he normally did. He had no idea that at 5 o'clock that evening he was going to be killed by a drunk driver. No idea. He thought he had a lifetime. He was 17. And like that, his life was snuffed out. It is appointed once for a person to die and then the judgment. So my encouragement to you is that you surrender your entire life to Christ. I can't make your heart believe that. Only God, the Holy Spirit, can make your heart believe that. And Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is truth replacing lies. And Lord, forgive all of us, every one of us, for passing judgment on other people and being critical of them. Not realizing or not taking into consideration that we've now just condemned and judged ourselves. Help us to embrace each other and recognize that we are just equally sinners. Lord, I, I, I want to read Galatians 6.1. I want to read this real quick. Just sense the Holy Spirit asking me to read this. Brothers, sisters, if a person is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and thus fulfill the law of Christ. That word restore is the idea of taking two bones and mending them back together so they are fully operational again. Look up and receive God's blessing. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. 
May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In Yeshua's name, amen. Meet, shake hands, meet and greet. Line up the...